Starting a new series today, and we're going to read today from one of Paul's letters, 2 Thessalonians. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to look. It's one of those little books at the back of the New Testament, so go way toward the back. If, if it's on your phone, just look up 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking today at chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, and as we often do here at Gateway, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word as uh, Ty reads for us this morning. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 13, and this is good stuff, so so dial in as Ty's, Ty's reading. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Thank you, Ty. You may be seated. Father, we thank you so much for the profound truth that is found in your word and how it knocks us out and applies to our lives, and we pray for that this morning. And Lord, today I really pray for the right kind of balance and the right reminder and the the right spirit, the right heart in each of us as we think about work and as we think about money. Lord, it is so easy for us to get out of balance and to tilt in one direction or the other. And we pray, God, today that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, much has been made in today's workplace about the expectations of the current 20-something generation. Numerous articles and speeches have addressed the perceived sense of entitlement of millennials. Now, I'm not saying that this is true, millennials. I'm just saying that this is the reputation that you have in some people's minds. The narrative goes something like this. They were all given participation trophies for everything they did. Now they expect to be rewarded for just showing up. And it reminds me of a story I read not long ago. Reaching the end of a job interview, an HR officer asked a young engineer fresh out of MIT, so what starting salary are you looking for? And the engineer replied, well, something in the region of $125,000 a year, depending on benefits package. The interviewer inquired, well, what would you say to a package of five weeks vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, company matching retirement fund, up to 50% of salary, and a company car leased every two years, say a red Corvette? The engineer was surprised, sat up straight and said, wow, are you kidding? And the interviewer said, yeah, but you started it. (laughs) So the Bible is clear that when it comes to work, we should walk a middle path. There are many things in our Christian lives that require us to walk with balance, and work is one of those things. In fact, heresy, both in the way we live and in the way we think, is often the result of losing our balance in one direction or the other. 
So on the one hand, the Bible strongly and consistently denounces our attempts to make work the source of our identity and to make the accoutrements of work the goal of our lives. The Bible also denounces a lack of diligence and a sense of entitlement. The lazy man will not work and the workaholic cannot rest, and Jesus denounces both. If we want to honor God, if we want our lives to sync up with how we were really made, then we will work diligently and honestly. We will be good at what we do. In most cases, we will make a lot of money. I'm going to say that again. In most cases, we will make a lot of money. But work and the money it produces will not be the center or the governing principle of our lives. So today, we're beginning a new series where we're going to talk about God's financial plan. And today, we're going to talk about work and money. And I'm going to give a homework assignment at the end of today. And when I do, part of that homework assignment is to make sure you come next week and the week after. Because today's message is not a message that can stand alone. Now, the passage that Ty read for us a second ago is not specifically addressed at how to view work, but Paul, the author of that, by implication, makes two critically important points about work that we should not miss. So point number one, it's essential that all of us contribute, that all of us work. It's essential that all of us work. Our work is essential. By essential, I mean it's both critically important and it's a fundamental part of how we follow Christ. First of all, it's a fairness issue. We're all to do our part because we're all a part. The one who doesn't work doesn't eat, literally, Paul said. And this isn't just an offhanded comment. Did you see right before it, Paul reminded them that he actually taught them this when he was with them. This is a consistent teaching for Paul. The one who doesn't work doesn't eat. Now, here at Gateway, we talk a lot about community. And our our deepest need is our our sense of needing to belong somewhere, of, of being able to love and having others love us. This is who we are. We're relational people. And it's interesting that Paul makes work a community issue, doesn't he? We are all to do our part, he insists. But more than a fairness issue, more than a community issue, work is critical to our spiritual lives. Work is part of our God-given responsibility. It's part of God's design for us. The, The clear implication of verse 13 at the end of this passage is that the one who is idle does not live according to right teaching. This is such an important issue for Christ followers that Paul, check this, commanded the Thessalonians to shun people who were not accepting their responsibility to work. In my experience being part of churches over the years, I think we spend too little time affirming one another for our work. So I want to do that this morning. I want to affirm you for your work. Certainly many Northern Virginians have a tendency to overwork. It's true that in the middle way I was talking about a second ago, uh, we often allow the scale to tilt too heavily in the work direction. However, we shouldn't become so sensitive to that fact that we forget that work is a good thing. It's an essential thing. Earning a living and contributing to society are good things. Having money so that you can invest in other people and in God's causes is a good thing. This is what God designed us to do. Some of you know that Genesis 2 gives an account of the Garden of Eden. And verse 15 of Genesis 2 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. The interesting thing is that 
This job assignment came even before God created Eve. Women, this is why you work harder than we do. We figure you have to make up for that time we were working by ourselves. Think about it. God gave Adam work before he gave him Eve. Now, some of you have heard me share this before, but a couple of years ago, I had the chance to spend some time with a church consultant named Doug Murin. And Doug made a fascinating point related to work. Listen to this. He said he believed that he's worked with thousands of churches all over the United States, various sizes, various denominations. And he'd come to the conclusion that 20% of the people involved in church should do most of the work of the church. And that's often, by people like me, that's lamented. Why isn't everybody doing everything? But Doug Murin made the point that 20% of the people of a church should do the bulk of the work of the church. Stay with me. Follow this chart. Murin believes that 10% of the average congregation, the people are just too unhealthy to carry much of a load. They're in some kind of emotional crisis or they've got so many issues going on, they just can't carry much of a load. And another 10% are too new to really carry much of a load. That's some of you. Then 20% of the people, he says, in a church should do the bulk of the work of the church. And the remaining 60%, he believes, are people who will and should spend most of their time and energy in the marketplace. And this was the interesting point. Doug claimed that this 60% were usually made to feel guilty because they didn't do more for the church. When in fact he believed that it was the church's responsibility to do more to encourage them to do what they were already doing only better. If Paul's teaching is to be received by us, and I think it is because it comes from God, then Doug Murin might be right. I don't know about his percentages. He made those up. They weren't based on anything other than his experience. So take that slide with a grain of salt. But I do believe that there may be a percentage of you that people like me owe an apology. You should be affirmed for your work, and we should learn how to equip one another to work better, to be even more productive, more efficient, to have more integrity in our jobs, to work with more rigorous honesty, and frankly to make even more money because your work is part of how you invest in our fellowship. It's how you contribute. And your work is a significant part of your God-given design. Pause for dramatic effect. Your work is essential. And it may very well be that God is asking of all of us that you make more money at it. You don't often hear that on Sunday morning. Proverbs 10.4 is interesting in this connection. Uh, Solomon says this, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now, there are a few of you who are blessed with a kind of natural focus and discipline. You should thank God and you should use that to its fullest extent. For the rest of us, we need to learn to be more diligent because diligent hands bring wealth. And and Solomon trots this out as a high compliment and an encouragement to all of us. We need to be diligent in our work. We need to work hard and we need to do it well because it produces wealth. It's almost as if Solomon is saying, make a plan to make more money. In fact, that's very close to what he does say in Proverbs 21.5. He says this, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. 
as surely as haste leads to poverty. Let me repeat. The Bible comes very close here to saying, make a plan to make more money. Now look, we have to remind ourselves of the balance needed. Remember the middle way between these two chasms, we're ta- these two cliffs we're talking about. Our attitude about work has to be held in check by our character, which means that we must be honest and forthright in all of our dealings. Our work cannot be the governing principle of our lives, and, and certainly, even more, making money cannot be the governing principle of our lives. But making lots of money is not a bad thing in and of itself. And in fact, if we are wise in the use of it, making lots of money is a very good thing. This is a far cry from what some of us usually think when we think about money. It's a far cry from what we think God thinks of money. Many of us are trained to think that making a lot of money is somehow unspiritual and maybe even not good. I mean, we try to do it anyway, but we feel guilty about it. But clearly, that's not how God thinks about it. Your work is essential, both to your spiritual life and to your community. Your work is a part of your God-given design. You should work hard and you should be good at it. And God willing, you should make lots of money doing it. All right. So let's pause for a second and pray. And I'm going to pray for those of you who work. And I'm going to pray especially for the 60% of you. And I'm going to pray that God will bless you. And I'm going to pray that you'll be diligent in your work and you'll be great at it. Because by that, we honor God. Let's pray. Father, we hear what you say. And I ask that you would pour out your blessing on those who are in the marketplace. I pray, Lord, that the best IT workers in Northern Virginia would be here. I pray that the best project managers, I pray that the best managers, I pray that the best strategists, I pray, Lord, that the best engineers and the best lawyers, that they would be here. I pray, Father, that you would make us diligent with the work of our hands, that we would work hard and well. And I pray, Lord, that you would prosper this community, pour out your blessing. We thank you that you have already. We're so thankful for your abundant blessings. I pray, Lord, that you would make us responsible with what you've given us, with what you've made us stewards of. I pray, Lord, that you would pour out even more. Father, we pray especially for those this morning who are out of work. Lord, I pray that you would provide And I pray, Father, for those who are not in the right work situation. I pray that you would lead and that you would guide, that you would open doors and that you would provide. Lord Jesus, bless the work of our hands. Make us busy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've still got another point to go. And I've got a couple of things I need to share with you that I've read over the last month about this that have really wiped me out. But let's center ourselves again. And I'm going to read the passage again to remind us of what Paul said. I'm going to read what Ty 
read again from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. So stay with me again and dial into Paul's words here. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They aren't busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, you never tire of doing what is right. So these Thessalonians were a particularly fascinating case, weren't they? Why was idleness such an issue for them? Why weren't they working? We don't know for sure, but most scholars believe that they were idle because they had an over-realized eschatology, fancy word eschatology, which just means thinking about or believing in or the study of the end times. And and Christians, based on the teaching of Jesus himself, had come to believe that history was not one giant circle that repeated itself, but it was an arrow pointing directly at a bullseye. There was going to be an end of human history as we know it, and God was going to reclaim and redeem everything, and Jesus himself was going to literally reappear. And so many, evidently, of these young Christians in the city of Thessalonica had come to believe that it was happening any day. And potentially, many of these folks were so excited about the the impending bullseye that they had stopped working. And they were just praying all day long and, and waiting for people to take care of them. What especially interests me about this is that we learn here that it's possible for our theological reflection to actually get in the way of our productivity. It's as if my grandmother was right when she said, we can be so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good. Our theology and the way we think about spiritual things can actually provide us with an excuse to be lazy. It can enable us to be a burden to others. We can spend all of our time going to Bible studies or to prayer meetings or to church committee meetings, allowing us no time to be productive. And this is not good because work is essential. All right, bear with me a minute as I talk about one of those things that I read. We're going to take a little detour and we're going to talk about money specifically. All of this that we've been talking about, this is part of the reason that I believe that Ronald Sider is partially wrong. Sider made some really good and compelling points, but... I think he overreached, and he overreached in a way that may even be unchristian. So who is Ronald Sider, Ed? Well, he is a Canadian-born theologian and social activist who, in 1979, wrote a book that hit the popular Christian culture like a boulder on a glassy lake. Sider's book is called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. You get the idea already. He wrote that book to and about people exactly like us. People who make a huge amount of money and therefore have huge resources at their disposal and who spend a great deal of those resources on themselves and their families. One of Sider's points is, if we really want to follow Christ, we should live with radical simplicity. 
One important manifestation of this simplicity would be, according to Sider, to live, listen to this, by giving away everything except for what meets our, quote, bare necessities. And Sider even suggested a bare necessities figure for us. For a family of five, he suggested that it would be something like 15000 So if we adjust that for inflation, somebody else will have to do the math, but that's going to be short of 50000 today. So Sider suggested that here's the figure, 50000 and anything that you make over 50000 should be given away and live with radical simplicity. This, he believed, was the teaching of the Bible. After all, didn't Jesus himself tell the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, come and follow me? And didn't Paul say that the love of money is a root of all evil? And aren't there rigorous statutes in the Old Testament commanding that the poor be taken care of as a top priority? Isn't Ina here with us today? If you haven't met Ina, you'll hear from her next week. You need to meet her. Ina lives among and represents very desperately poor people who could use resources like the resources that we have in our pockets. Are we feeling guilty yet? That's all true. Jesus did command that the rich young ruler sell all that he had. Paul did denounce the love of money. And there are rigorous Old Testament laws about caring for the poor. And Ina is here today. But we need to remember that Jesus didn't give that advice to everyone. He gave the exhortation to sell all to one very wealthy young man because he knew this young man's heart. He knew that money was a major impediment. Now, it may very well be that Jesus wants to give that counsel to someone here today. But this isn't universal counsel. And we need to remember that Paul didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money is a root of all evil, and those are important differences. And let's remember, the command to care for the poor, don't miss this, the command to care for the poor in the Old Testament had some very interesting manifestations. It worked itself out in some very interesting ways. For example, there were gleaning laws aimed at helping the poor. Specifically, every landowner was required by law to leave the edge of their field ungleaned so that the poor could come and gather grain for themselves. That means every landowner was required by law not to gather in all of their resources, but to leave some for the poor. However, we shouldn't miss a very important feature about this. The poor person was required to work for their bread. They had to glean the field themselves, plus it was the hardest part of the field to glean, and they had to do it at the most inconvenient times. Then the poor person would take the yield, go home, and make their own bread. God was insistent that those who were at the bottom of the socioeconomic structure should be cared for, but this was not an entitlement program. This was not a handout. Everyone was asked to be responsible and to work hard. And this theme shows up throughout the Old Testament's provisions for the poor, repeatedly. In 1982, an author named Gary North wrote a forceful response to Ronald Sider's book. He called his book, check this, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulation. North argued for good old-fashioned capitalism. And here's the thing, he offered a biblical case for it. Now, 
I think it's something of a stretch to believe that the Bible lays out any single economic system. But North did a decent job, and he, he did a slam-dunk job. He built a slam-dunk case based on the Bible of outlining what our real economic goal should be. According to Gary North, the Bible consistently teaches us to be hard workers, to be personally responsible, and to make money. Then he reminds us that this goal should be married to a concern for our neighbor. That's the middle way. The goal is not to have some legalistic standard for how much we should make and shouldn't make, how much we should spend and shouldn't spend. The goal is to be radically diligent, radically responsible, radically honest, and radically concerned. And it may very well be that one or two or five families here today need to hear the call to live far more simply so that you can give far more away. There may be a family or two here whom God is calling to sell all that you have and give to the poor. This is what Ina did. But this is not a universal command. You are commanded to be diligent and to work hard and to the best at it that you can. And this honors God. Again, I'm certainly not opening up space for any of us to be radically self-centered or radically work-obsessed. But diligent work and its rewards are God-honoring goals. This is the centerpiece of any biblical understanding of money and work. Remember the middle way. Here it is again. Work is not the centerpiece or the governing principle of my life, but it is essential. And I will do my very best at it, and I will make the most that I can, and I will use those resources with wisdom and purpose. Our work is essential, spiritually essential, Bible-affirmed, God-honoring, community-promoting, by design essential. And those of you who make up Gateway 60%, thank you. Thank you. We're able to do what we do because of you. We can support people like Ina because of you. Thank you. And by the way, we're building a new facility and it's very expensive and we need you to pay for it. <laughs> so go make more money. Your work is essential. Number two thing that Paul says, and we'll be quick with this one. Not only is work essential, work also facilitates your ministry. Your work facilitates your ministry. In other words, you have a ministry because you work. Paul directly mentions two ways in which work facilitated his ministry. Number one, his work allowed him to contribute, to not be a burden to anyone. And number two, his work allowed him to be a model to them. And by implication, we're going to add a third way. We're not going to talk about it, but we're going to add a third way today in which our work facilitates our ministry. It allows us to be generous. Okay, first of all, Paul's work and ours facilitates our ministry because it allows us to positively contribute. We are not a burden to anyone. The end of 7, verse 8, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul worked so as not to be a burden to anyone. He didn't want anything to stand as an impediment to someone else hearing his message, the good news about what God had done in Jesus. So he made himself a contributing part of the community. The same is true for you. Through your work, you make a contribution to society at large and to our fellowship. You are not a burden. Thank you. 
This means you can communicate God's love to others in a way that is unencumbered by a handout. Secondly, Paul's work facilitated his ministry because it it enabled him to be a model to the Thessalonians. He says after that, on the contrary, we worked day and night laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate, among other things, Paul's work allowed him to say this. See, look, I'm just like you. Do, do it like this. We work so that we can make a contribution and, and so that we can be a model for what Christ is like to others. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not like Paul. I'm, I'm not a missionary in some foreign country. I'm, I'm just a project manager. I'm just a school teacher. But that's where you're wrong. You are a missionary. You are a missionary to a culture that is self-satisfied and sick with the cancer of self-reliance and materialism. Many of our co-workers believe that they will be content and fulfilled if they can just achieve the right arrangement of comfortable and pleasurable circumstances. That's it. They'll be completely happy then if only their circumstances would change a little bit here and a little bit there. This thought may not be front and center in everything they do, but it's just under the surface always. And you are a missionary to a culture that really believes this insidious delusion. God has parachuted you into the middle of that culture and asked you to be a minister. Your work is your cover. It allows you to be a model to others and it keeps you from being a burden to anyone. Your work allows you to pull your own weight. Your work gives you credibility. It allows you to say this, hey, I'm just like you except I have this hope in me. I have this peace in me that doesn't depend on my circumstances. I'm just like you. I've got the same kind of bills. I've got the same kind of pressures. I've got the same kind of distractions. But there's something that keeps me centered. There's something that, that keeps my head just above the worry line on the one hand and prevents me from abdicating or giving up on the other hand. Can I tell you what that something is? Your work gives you the opportunity to make that speech. The great reformer Martin Luther was once approached by a a working person who wanted to know how he could serve God like Luther himself. Luther asked him, well, what do you do for a living? And the man said, I'm a shoemaker. And much to the shoemaker's surprise, Luther said, then make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. Your work is essential. It's part of God's design, and your work facilitates your ministry. Third, a third feature of the way our work facilitates our ministry is it allows us to be generous. All right, we're going to have a lot to say about this in two weeks. But for now, let's just say that a principal reason that God prospers us and wants us to make all we can is so that we can give to God-honoring causes. I want to give you some questions to consider this week, and then I want to give you a homework assignment. Here are some questions for you and I to consider this week. I mean this literally. Questions for you to literally consider. This is not rhetorical. Number one, have you felt God's pleasure in your work? And how? And this week, ask him, someday on your way to work this week, God, are you pleased with my work? Are you pleased with what I do? Am I diligent? Am I doing well? Am I representing you? Have I given that speech? Second, I want you to ask yourself, 
How are you seeing God at work in your work? Do you think of your work as something that facilitates your ministry? Is this a new thought for you or is today a reminder for you? How are you seeing God at work in your work, in the way that you treat your coworkers, and in how excellent a product you produce? Third, how are you creating opportunities for others at your work? For those who are less fortunate, for those who are behind you, for those who are younger than you, how are you creating opportunities for others at your work? Okay, here's your homework assignment. This week, for some of you, it will start, honestly, this afternoon, unfortunately. For many of you, tomorrow morning. Do your job well. Be the best employee you can be. Work hard. Work well. Work honestly. Work diligently. This week. Secondly, make all you can. Some of you are making a lot. And some of us need to make a plan for how we can be making more next year than we're making today. For some of you, it really does depend on you and and how hard you're working. So work hard and work well and make more. And finally, come the next two weeks. Don't let this be a standalone. I'm afraid that somebody is going to go home this afternoon and for the rest of their life and think, shoot, the Bible tells me to just go and make as much as I can. And that's not the only thing the Bible has to say about our work or our money. So come the next two weeks because we're going to round this out. Let me end with this. The other thing I read over this past month, I've been thinking about these series of messages. I read something else that just crazy knocked me out. There are a chorus of historians, not necessarily Christians, certainly some Christians, but many others. There are a chorus of historians who believe that the difference between France and England in the 18th century, and if you remember, France, of course, made a very slow, prolonged, those of you who know your European history, France made a slow, prolonged transition into the Industrial Revolution, and it was very, very bloody. Poor people rose up and literally stole property and killed lots of very wealthy elites. In England, the transition to the Industrial Revolution was much smoother, and really, when you lived it day to day, I'm sure it felt excruciatingly long, but it was a much shorter, smoother process than happened in France and other places on the continent. And historians have asked why. And more than one historian has suggested that the difference between the bloody revolution in France and the rather peaceful, quick transition and the whole culture that happened in England was because of the Wesley revivals. John Wesley was a preacher in the 1800s in England, and hundreds of thousands of people came to know Christ because Wesley did something brand new. First of all, he was fiery, and second of all, he took the message outside of the staid old Church of England, and he started preaching on the streets. And then as people became Christians, he would encourage them to go out and preach on the streets. And two amazing things happened. Out of the Wesley revivals, there was a 
torrent, a, a hurricane of agencies and local groups and new ministries that rose up to help the poor. The Salvation Army came out of this period. Any number of ministries and organizations and opportunities to help the poor grew out of the Wesley Revivals. The other thing that, that happened, again, I'm reading secular historians who will say the other thing that happened out of the Wesley Revivals is that very overworked and people who worked in often horrible working, like the miners, the Welsh miners, they would become Christians under the influence of Wesley's teaching and they stopped drinking and they stopped going to brothels. And instead, they started living the middle way. And in less than a generation, a middle class was produced in England where it had never existed before because people changed the pattern of their lives and they began to work hard and diligently and honestly and they began to make more money and they began to keep it. Wesley repeated this quote in a hundred of Wesley's sermons. We have many, hundreds and hundreds of Wesley's sermons. Many, many times Wesley told those who were, were listening to his message three things. And this is the basis of what we're saying this morning and for the next two weeks. Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Let's pray. Lord, we really want to know that uh, you're pleased with us. You're pleased with our work. Father, we want to see you in our work in the way you use us and in the way you're able to use our resources. And Lord, we also ask that you would create opportunities for others through us. Give us a renewed diligence for what we do week in and week out. Inspire us, Lord, to do what we do well to be good at it and to work hard at it. Lord, give us spirit discipline. So, Father, that our lives are marked by your peace and a healthy sweat. Jesus, make us responsible. And, Father, out of that, give us broken hearts for the poor. We want to serve you with all our days, with all of our might and all of our days. So, Father, this morning, I I pray that you would, in a new way, be creating a vision for each of us about our work, the value of it, the essentialness of it. Show us, Lord, how... You're using us where we are. Thank you for your blessings. For those of us who have work, Lord, thank you. Make us a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.